Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series where I talk with writers and podcasters and artists and musicians about their favorite stories. Joining me today is writer Sunyi Dean. Sunyi's stories have appeared in the best of British sci-fi, prol, and, and really loads of other venues. And I think most importantly, her debut novel, The Book Eaters, is going to be out in February of 2022. Sunyi, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Glenn. It's good to be here. So I know that it is like literally a year from now, but I have to say I am very, very excited for The Book Eaters. It is set in an alternate 1990s Britain, which is really all I need to know to be excited about this book. But what else can you tell us about it? Uh, so I guess in, in really simple terms, it is about people who eat books. That was kind of the underlying concept, <laughs> but that's more of a setting thing. It really allowed me to dive into my love of fairy tales and fairy tale myths and what happens about, you know, how we're influenced by the media we consume when you have these people who are very literally influenced by the things that they eat. Um, and it just kind of is a, bit, a little bit of a tribute to North England. London doesn't feature even once because although, you know, normally books set in England, they have to feature London. Hmm. Uh, it's all kind of Northumbria, Scotland, Yorkshire. And I just had fun with it. Um, and I look forward to it coming out at some point. Yeah, I'm very, very excited about it as well. And as, as someone who has lived both in the North and the South of England, I, I will say I consider myself, though an American, I consider myself to be an uh, adopted uh, Yorkshireman. And uh, I am very excited about uh, about having a story, having a fantastical story set in the in the North like that. And I love this idea of of, of consuming books. I, you know, it's something I think that, that maybe has gone unnoticed and uncommented on is that we use a lot of eating metaphors to talk about the way that we approach media. I mean, we just, people say, I binged that TV show. And it's such a weird thing to say. Yeah, I mean, there, this is a bit of a weird inspiration, but there, there was a cartoon in the 90s called Gargoyles, which had a character, uh, the sorcerer Macbeth, who eats a book to get to sneak into Avalon or something. And it's such a, a kind of visceral image. Um, and I also know that there's an editor at Orbit called Brit Avide, I think that's how you pronounce her name. She has a kind of synesthesia where she tastes books that she reads. So manuscripts and novels have different tastes to her. And that, that whole, I find that really interesting that she's like that. Um, so there is a little bit of that, but there's kind of, uh, it's, it is a very commercial book. It's possibly not as literary as the kind of things you read. And it's more of a thriller, but I still had fun with it. So hopefully others will find it fun too. Yeah, we're certainly not opposed to commercial fiction here. Uh, not not one bit. I mean, it is true that we do quite a bit of uh, of literary stuff here on the the network, you know, in terms of literary fiction. But we uh, we love ourselves some pulps as well, and so I'm very very excited for this book. And 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 I hope I'll be able to get you back on somewhere on the network to to you know, promote the book as well when it actually uh, comes out. And I've got a physical copy in my hands. But uh, let's turn to talking about the story that you have picked out for us to to talk about today, which is uh, Chichis Bayo by M. John Harrison. This is in his 2017 collection, You Should Come With Me Now, though it is also available for free online. I'm going to put a link for that in the, the show notes. I'm going to start off here just with a very brief synopsis to orient listeners, and then, then I have questions for you. I'm very excited to talk about this book. 
So in contravention of everything that you just said about your own book, this story takes place entirely in London. So it is London. It is now. It's it's our world. Uh, And this is the story of Tim and Lizzie, who are a middle-aged couple with two sons, and they have a girl on the way. The story is told to us in the first person by a friend of theirs. Uh, really, it's a, it's a friend of Lizzie's, I should say. And friend here you know, means really former lover. In this case, I think he's really eager to drop the former whenever Lizzie is ready to do that as well. And when the story begins, it has been three years since he has heard from Lizzie, but she invites him back into their lives. And so he spends time at their house, and he's really excited when their daughter is born. But the story is really about what's going on with Tim. You see, their house is way too small, even for four, let alone for five. And so he is converting their their loft, which is uh, attic in American. He's converting their loft into living space. And then he just kind of moves up there. Uh, There's a TV. He lives on canned beans. There are drilling sounds. And there's always this white dust everywhere. And he sleeps up there, too. He doesn't go to the hospital with Lizzie when their daughter is born, and he doesn't come down from the attic to to meet her. And Lizzie asks the, the narrator to intervene, to get Tim to come down and be a part of his family again. And the narrator tries, and, and this is all going on for, for months and months, but he, he, he tries, but Tim pretends that everything is fine. He almost pretends like he doesn't know what anyone is on about. And then months later, Lizzie calls the narrator frantic. He rushes over just in time to see the house collapse. But just as it collapses, he sees in the air coming out of the, the loft uh, a tunnel that Tim had been digging. It's, it's transparent, but luminous and just hanging in the air. And it is part of a network of other transparent, luminous tunnels that come out of the houses and connect to a bigger tunnel a thousand feet up. And Tim says, what would you have done? To which the narrator replies, we'll come back and find another way in. And that's the that's the story. That's the end of the story. And so really where I just want to start here, Sonny, is just to ask you why you chose this story to talk about today. What is it about this story that you really love? Uh, so I guess uh, I'd read M. John Harrison's, I guess you would call it his seminal work. Uh, so I've read M. John Harrison's Raconium, and that's obviously a kind of science fantasy that's very strange. And then he came out with this new collection of short stories, and I saw it recommended by some editors who I really like, who they basically said, you know, some of these short stories, if they were novels, we would publish them kind of thing. Um, And I read it and this story, it stood out to me so much. It was just, it seemed, if you read the whole collection, he occasionally revisits some of the kind of characters or concepts. There's there's a little bit of a callback to the story in another one of them, I think called Yummy or something like that. And it was also the story that I use for a writing exercise, which I learned from Gene Wolfe. Um, and Gene Wolfe has a, a writing exercise he recommends, which is that you take a story you like, you read it obsessively, and then you kind of put it away and try and write it yourself to see what is going on with the narrator. And uh, sorry, what's going on with the writer, what they're doing, what they're, what was easy for you, what was hard, what you remember, what you didn't. Um, and I, I've done that with this story, and it really helped me to understand dialogue and the importance of what we leave out, uh, because. If, if you kind of look at the story, you'll find that there are big sections where the narrator is silent, where people are not saying things, where things are not being looked at. And it's the kind of silences and the pauses and the gaps that I think make this story really stand out. I think it's one of the best written into craft term short stories I've read in a very long time. 
It is just marvelously written. I mean, I mean, the most of the story, we don't really get to any kind of speculative element until the very end, the last you know, two, three pages or so, do we get the speculative element. So it reads just like a, a contemporary relationship drama. And it is absolutely riveting. I really feel for all of these characters, yeah. which is actually hard to do from in a first person story. I think it's easy to care about the narrator uh, or think a narrator is a jerk, I suppose. Right. But in this case, I think it was very easy to care about the narrator and care about Lizzie because he does. But yet somehow, even though Tim is kind of an obstacle for him, I still found myself really caring about Tim and, and somehow rooting for Tim and Lizzie and also for the narrator and Lizzie all at the same time. And that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think as well, one of the things that stood out to me is actually the very first thing you encounter in the story is the title, Chichis Bayo, and that is an Italian word, and it means a married woman's lover. And one of the things I love about this word is we do not have an equivalent in English. We have mistress, which is the word for a married man's lover, but we don't have the female equivalent, which is why Harrison's having to borrow it from Italian. And I mean, that's kind of extraordinary in itself, because English has probably the largest lexicon of any living modern language at the moment, you know, due to colonialism and the fact that it just absorbs words. Uh, but this is missing. And, you know, you can kind of look into the commentary on that as the difference between English culture versus Italian, that they have a word for it and we don't. Um, but it was also, to me, a kind of indication this story is maybe going to focus on an angle or perspective we wouldn't always see. And I think that that's very true uh, because... Have you ever, if you heard of the, 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 there's like a Shakespeare play called Rosen, uh, it's not a Shakespeare play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes, the Tom Stoppard play. That is absolutely one of my favorites. It's a variant of Hamlet and it focuses on minor characters in the original Hamlet play. And Chiches Bayo reminded me of that a little bit because I think that you could conventionally write the story as, uh, from Tim, Tim's point of view, man trying to escape crushing mundanity of his modern middle-aged middle-class life and he starts building a crazy tunnel in the air to some other existence and it's not about that at all you know tim's hardly in it um and so just the, the whole aspect of it takes this unusual character which is rarely talked about in our culture the married woman's lover the unusual perspective of someone who's almost peripheral to the main story and puts them center place. Um, and I just, I always admire that in short fiction. Uh, just the angle kind of less explored, the perspective less seen. I want to ask you about the the character of the the narrator and his involvement in this story. I mean, I think definitely a fun exercise to do, a different writing exercise to do with this story would be to rewrite it from the perspective of, say, Lizzie, then also maybe go ahead and write it from the perspective of, of Tim. You could keep it in that first person voice, which would be really interesting to do. But something that we don't quite realize at the beginning of the story, we don't realize until the end, is that the narrator really only enters the lives of Tim and, and Lizzie again when this business with the digging the tunnel in the sky has has started. And the story ends with that with the house literally collapsing and then presumably that effort being abandoned. And so what happens to these three people, maybe the you know love triangle we might call it, you know, next on the on the next page, does do do Tim and Lizzie you know pick up? They go find someplace else to live with their kids, and then the narrator is just out again because the, this part of the story is over. Or does he carry on in their lives? Do you think? Yeah, I think if I had one criticism of the stories in this collection, I, I think maybe this is somewhat endemic of literary fiction. The story ends quite abruptly, um, and I think uh, a friend of mine she she describes literary fiction as exploring the question is more important than the answer. And that maybe is the case here. Um, 
But I, th- I think as well, because when the first time I read it, I, I thought, oh, this is just contemporary fiction. And then you get to the end and you find the speculative element. Um, and the more often I reread it, the more I realized that the, the, I think part of why it ends there is because the entire story is about Tim digging his supernatural tunnel, which you don't find very much about. But you don't find very much about it because the story is all about people ignoring what's going on around them. Uh, and you, you have kind of Tim ignoring his family because he can't cope. He's, he's just suffocating. Uh, you have Lizzie who's trying not to deal with her husband and there's various other things going on, I think, with um, these hints that she doesn't get on well with work and stuff and how she handles her life. And, of course, the narrator who's ignoring anything that just is inconvenient except until the very end when they all sort of the truth comes out and they're all facing each other and, you know, all the, the metaphorical elements in the room are exposed and there's nothing that can be hidden. And I think possibly that's why the story ends where it does. Is the point where all the things that everyone has been ignoring and putting into gaps and putting into shadows has been laid out in the open. Right. And I really love this this last bit of dialogue that we get from Tim, who who we should say has has definitely been actively hiding the the speculative element of this story, this this luminous uh, tunnel that you know goes up into the sky. He's been hiding that from from Lizzie, from his kids, and also from the narrator as well, and and being quite dodgy about it. Right? There's a moment when the narrator you know says something like, uh, "Maybe I could just pop up into the attic and take a look around and see what you're doing." And Tim <laughs> says, uh, "Maybe later would be better. It's kind of dusty up there," and you know, which is obviously the flimsiest excuse. He doesn't want people. To know about this, this is a kind of secret for him, and it does, of course, very much feel. I mean, there's definitely something. Maybe this is actually a question I should I should I should put to you, which is is why does he keep that secret? I, I guess you know one thing that I'm thinking about is that he is actually trying to escape, and he doesn't want people to know that he's found a way out somewhere. Or is it just that he's got something special that he wants to hold on for himself? Yeah, I think maybe he harbors his hope that he'll finally dig his way out. He also seems quite cross at the end, like they, they've all stymied him, but he's really the one who's collapsed his own house, which was a bit of a strange moment. And I, I think as well, have you ever encountered the term microtension in talking about books? Uh, no, I haven't. Please tell me about this. Uh, okay, so there's there's a famous literary agent called Donald Mass, and he's written some really good craft books, actually. Uh, one of the concepts he talks about is the difference between macro tension and micro tension. And macro tension is the, the one we think about in tension, the moment where the gunman is the gun, the bomb's about to go off, the counters, the, the timer's counting down from 10 seconds. Um, but micro tension is what he defines as the little tiny conflicts that fill up the rest of the narrative. And that's between the, the characters, the, the back and forth pull of one character wants this, one character wants that. Um, and I think for me, this story is sort of a hundred percent microtension. Um, you know, you talked about finding it riveting. I did as well. I remember the first time I read the story, I read it thinking there's absolutely nothing going on. <laughs> this is particularly interesting. And I was still kind of driven to read it through to the end and, you know, sad when it was over. And I think it's because he's just developed these characters so well that you're so keen to know what's going on beneath the surface with them, what they're not saying. And, sometimes maybe some of the responses that the narrator doesn't share with us. There's whole sections of dialogue where it's just Lizzie, she said, she said, she said, and you don't hear what the Chiches Bayo has responded to her with. And for me, that fits in with the supernatural element as well. 
where all the hidden things are kind of folded into each other and you're really having to pick it apart. And it's all about the little things, the things at the edges, the things that you can almost not quite see. Yeah, we don't know anything at all about the narrator, which I find so interesting because he has he has great comments on on both Tim and Lizzie. I like the comments about Tim in particular as being uh, someone who used to you know row, I guess, do crew at, at uni, and and still kind of looks like it, and and doesn't really get older. He just kind of gets tired, which is a great characterization, and 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 then also even some characterization of like their their friends who are uh, all people similarly in their late thirties who are making more money than than they actually should and don't really quite know how to be people. I mean, just really great commentary there on these characters. But we know nothing about the narrator. We don't know his name. We don't know really even like where he lives within London. We don't know what he does for a living. There's a line in here where he just says something like, it was okay that Lizzie didn't have time for me because I was working a lot then anyway, but doesn't tell us what that is. We don't know anything about his station in life. He's basically non-existent in his own story. And that's a really interesting move. Yeah, because his, his voice is very dominant. Um, and I think you get a sense that, you know, there's this implication that he's picking up on things, that perhaps he's jealous or it would reflect on him. You know, he picks up on these people who have money because I think he probably doesn't have any, though you, you don't know for sure. He picks up on, I think that there's one mention of kind of the sunlight on the trash bags outside his house. And, and this kind of the, the way Lizzie looks around his house, saying, oh, it's bigger than I thought. And you think maybe he doesn't have, he's not as well off as she is in some capacity, or he's living in a less desirable area. But he's very elusive. He, like the speculative elements, he's just almost existing at the fringe of his own story. And you can kind of read it over and over, and he's still barely there, even though he's the strongest thing. And he's the lens that, you know, he's obviously got a personality. Um, and so much is left to the interpretation. I, I remember as well reading it thinking, why is he helping her? Why is this guy, he doesn't want to be there. He's more and more uncomfortable with every intervention she asks him to make. Um, I mean, I find it kind of amazing, the, the idea that you would go and ask your illicit lover to step in for your partner's mental health. <laughs> There's something really <laughs> odd about that. <laughs> and he just kind of goes along with it in very rarely do you see him. And when he does say the odd statement, it really stands out. I mean, he'll say, oh, I was bored and I thought she might light up my life again. Or I think very early on at the start when he talks about how he wants to put the phone down and not speak to her for another three years. And just these flashes of him that come through from a narrative that's otherwise very obscuring. The the way that 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 Harrison writes their relationship is to me one of the real strengths of this story. Something that we get so much of in speculative fiction, fantasy might be a little more guilty of this than science fiction. Is just really terrible writing about relationships, where we just don't have a writer typically anyway. We we don't get writers just saying, "Hey, look, there's this character, and then there's that character, and they're super into each other, and that motivates them." And you know the weird alchemy that connects people. Romantically is not something that we need to spend a whole lot of time on because the details of that would be irrelevant. It'd be and really even be inscrutable to us as an audience. All that matters is that we know that they feel uh, this way about each other. But instead, in fantasy, uh, in particular, we so often get well this impulse to show rather than to tell. I suppose, which generally is a pretty good impulse, but to to want to show us how awesome these people are and how great their love is for each other and and why uh, to show us these great dates and so on. 
on, which just often does not work. And Harrison doesn't do that here. He just says, yeah, look, the narrator's into Lizzie and he's making bad choices and inconvenient choices because he's into her. And that's all you need to know. You don't need to see why. I don't need to convince you, the reader, that she's awesome. I don't need to make you feel the same way about her that the narrator does. I just need to tell you that that's how the narrator feels. And then we can go on from there. And that's a real confident move that I like. It's interesting as well. Just he has all this commentary going on about society that I have to stop and think about. If I, when I go through it, just the way they interact, the expectations about where you're supposed to live and who you're supposed to talk to and how you speak to people, and the fact that everyone in their lives must be aware of how what an odd pair Lizzie and <laughs> their best friend are. Um, this best friend who apparently drops out of you for years at a time and reappears and is suddenly practically moved in. <laughs> um, but we, of course, we don't really see that. Um, there's maybe a sense that the narrator himself is kind of escaping his own life in a, in a tangible way, comparable to how Tim is trying to dig out of his life in a speculative or supernatural way. That's a really great observation because it it is the case that we know nothing about him. And so certainly my assumption of the narrator is that he is not in some kind of partnership that he really does. He lives alone, is not in any kind of committed you know, romantic relationship with anyone. But I don't know that that's really true. That's never actually explained here. He might have someone like that in his life in the same way that, that Lizzie you know, does. I mean, I think it's fair to say that he doesn't have a family. You know, we don't get any real indication of anything like that. But, you know, I just filled in the blanks kind of the way that I wanted to, but didn't didn't maybe in, interrogate that. But my, my sense of their relationship, the, the three of them, was that you know these were people who were part of a friend group, perhaps a large friend group in their late 20s, you know, just spending time at pubs and bars and that sort of thing. And then people have grown up, people have matured and gone and gotten jobs and started families and bought houses. And that is certainly the story of Tim and Lizzie, but that the narrator has not done that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I imagine that he was a bartender. <laughs> it could well be. Um, I think if you read the whole collection, man, I know it's more about one story, but that, that theme comes up again and again. Of basically, people kind of not coping with their lives in various ways. Just this this quiet death. Um, there's a, oh, I have to find his name now. There's a Russian film director who made films that were sort of literary and small and they focused, you know, they're appropriately depressing as Russian films often <laughs> are. And that they would focus on people um, living in the Russian equivalent of council flats and just their kind of small petty lives. And he described his films as being post-apocalyptic, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and in, in the interview where he talks about it, he says, not because they show a Mad Max kind of world, which they don't. They're all contemporary. But because he wanted to write about the total apocalypse of a single human being, that the ruination of a single life, uh, that, that to him was what apocalypse meant, just, just people breaking down quietly inside, internally, within a working, functioning, ever-moving-forward society. And there's a sense of that, I think, throughout the whole collection – um, a little bit of that in Tim. I think all the, the stories have it to varying degrees, but they're these people who are just kind of lost and falling apart at the edges or falling apart internally or not coping or struggling or just being scattered. And it's almost not noticed. It's like it's this is part of our mundane existence, people just slipping between the cracks or falling into themselves. 
I, I want to tug on that a little bit, and I want to ask you some questions about about Tim's experience here. But as you were describing that 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 style of of filmmaking or the sort of like generic content of those films, it occurred to me that this story here is more or less the exact plot of Edgar Allan Poe's famous story, The Fall of the House of Usher. In that you have a, a a man and a woman living together in a, a home and having a very close relationship, and then there being another man who comes to the home, and that and and is a kind of stressor on that relationship, but also maybe is a friend, maybe is not, and then there's also maybe something speculative going on, something supernatural going on, but also maybe there isn't, and then in the end the whole house collapses and everyone can get on with their lives. Uh, I had not somehow had not noticed that before no i hadn't either but i haven't read that one actually um so i've read a collection of post stories and not the full house of <laughs> well so, i'm afraid i just spoiled it for you but uh, no, <laughs> well it is a classic story it's actually my favorite edgar Allan Poe story in fact it's something that um i've been like putting off doing on this show because i feel like delaying my gratification is somehow like a morally righteous thing to do though <laughs> i think it's actually probably silly i should read stories i want to read so we'll get to that eventually but let, let's talk about tim because i'm i'm interested in what is going on uh, with him internally. And I will say just as kind of a, a, a self-deprecating uh, joke of a story here, I will say that, wow, did I identify with Tim a little bit here. I, I, in the past year, I have become a new parent. Uh, we are living... We're living in a rather small house. Our kitchen is dreadful. Um, if I had 20,000 pounds, I would put in a new kitchen as well, even if that's not a fiscally wise thing to do. That's what I would love to do. And uh, because of the, uh, the we were, we're, and because we've been in the process of doing yet another round of sleep training with our baby, I've actually been sleeping down in our basement for a little while and feeling a little like left out and alienated from the family. And so uh, when I read this story a few nights ago, I said, I know that we're supposed to be sleep training and that the reason I'm down there is so that I can be rested when I have to get up with him uh, before dawn. But I'm, I can't do it. I was like, I cannot be Tim. I will not be Tim. I am going upstairs. I'm staying upstairs tonight. Um, I felt wretched the next day, but it was it was totally worth it. But is it you know I could see kind of the slow descent of Tim here as someone someone feeling trapped and sort of looking for this escape. And I, I will assure listeners that I am I am not secretly digging a, a luminous tunnel out of my out of my basement, but. Here's the question really that I've got about the speculative fiction element of this story, which is what is it that enables or, or leads Tim to discover the tunnels or what's the relationship be between discovering the sky tunnels and Tim's uh, poor mental health? Well, I don't know. I mean, that we, we see so little of Tim. He's, occasionally the, the narrator seems to sympathize. I mean, I mean, he seems to kind of side with Tim when Tim's having this little not quite argument with Lizzie in the kitchen about the cost of their kitchen. And he's kind of understanding that, but what, you only ever hear secondhand, not even from the narrator seeing it, but from Lizzie telling the narrator that one day Tim went up into the loft. Um, and you kind of wonder what drove him up there in the first place, uh, possibly another argument or possibly just, and he talks about, Oh, there's not enough space. Um, and I think there's a few points early on when he says, you, you've got to get away from it all. And maybe he just has a, his own growing sense of claustrophobia that his family is getting bigger and it's pushing him out or that just that he doesn't see a way out of his situation. I don't know. You, see, you know so little about him. Uh, at times it's almost frustrating 
Yeah, I think I think this is I think Tim's experience is one that probably most of us having lived through 2020 now can relate to in some sense of the you know this feeling trapped in your own home and need, really feeling a need to get away from it all and I think you know certainly a lot of people uh, in this past year have discovered just how uh, just how little sort of private space there is in their own homes when everyone in the family you know you know parents and kids are there all the time that there is actually no place to retreat to for like real alone time which is you know this is a staple of the like dad character in tv sitcoms of course right is um having to lock yourself in the bathroom or you know endlessly working on uh, a, a car that doesn't even exist you know <laughs> in the garage or something like that just to, just to find a place to get away and you know that's something we laugh at in those sitcoms but i think we've all experienced this past year that that can be a real serious thing and it seems to be what tim is going through here as well but i i guess i was wondering you know i guess really it's why why does tim discover the sky tunnels and like most other people do not does he discover the sky tunnels because he's in such desperate need of an escape or does he maybe actually go up to the loft to to really try to be converting it to space just saying look there's a problem we have don't have enough space for five people in this house i'm gonna fix it and i will do that and then he discovers this thing and that actually is what starts to you know i'll say drive him to madness uh think you know just because that's a weird fiction trope though it's really a gross exaggeration i don't know i reckon he probably just saw it it, like it says, he, he looked up there for some reason and saw it. And this implication that there are tunnels all over London, that that story is playing out all over the city of people really just trying to get out away from their lives. He seems, he doesn't seem unintelligent. The way that he's written, the narrator's always not fussed about him, but he's not written to be stupid. Um, he seems to know that his wife is kind of with someone else and he isn't that bothered really. He's just, he wants to get away i'm more curious where the big tunnel goes <laughs> and what happens with that um and i read the whole book looking for clues and you never <laughs> find out where the big tunnel goes hey, is this secretly a story about how everyone just wants to escape london <laughs> yeah. It takes a lot more to England, you know, to Leeds or something. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, exactly. But let me ask you about the the tunnel network. I mean, we just don't get anything more about it. And and you know, this was a story that felt very much. Uh, well, maybe I won't say that. I'll, let me ask you a question before I sort of lay my cards on the table. And one thing I'll I'll, I'll say about the way that Brandon and I define weird fiction on this podcast is is really about the, the, the broadest way that a person could define weird fiction. For us, we don't treat that as a genre. We treat it as a mode of storytelling where you could take a story in, in any genre, any kind of speculative genre, or even just literary fiction and plot it on a scale that's got weird on one end and wondrous on the other. And, you know, you can plot them anywhere and we'll, we'll do anything that's, that's, you know, anywhere near, you know, anywhere on the weird part of that spectrum or even at the center and think about it from the perspective of, of weird. But here's the, the question that I have for you is, is, do you think that the tunnels here, these luminous sky tunnels, are they a weird element or are they a wondrous element? Are we supposed to be afraid of them? Are they supposed to be showing us that there's something weird and, and potentially sinister about the world? Or is this showing us that there's something wonderful and possibly magical about the world? Ooh, I think probably weird. I don't. I feel like no one using these tunnels is kind of approaching them in it from a sense of exploratory adventurism. Uh, there's, it, it's maybe the suggestion that falls into the rest of the story that there's always something beneath the layers to other people, to events that you're not seeing or that we're ignoring, and that everyone is is trying so hard not to look at things that they don't want to see, which. 
uh, I don't know if you've ever read any Vandermeer books, but a lot of his horror is based around this idea that um, scary things are the edges of your vision. And if you look at them, they'll catch you kind of. So there's, he has all these monsters in his, in his annihilation books and making eye contact with them is dangerous almost. Um, and there's a, I don't know, to me, it felt sinister, maybe because in the, it, you could take it either way if you read the story on its own, but in the context of other things, in the rest of the collection, there's just an oppressiveness to so many of the supernatural elements. Uh, and there's very little, there's nothing that's just kind of good for its own sake almost. Yeah, that's certainly my feeling here as well. I, I didn't think that the discovery uh, of these tunnels from the, the narrator's perspective was meant to leave him or us, the readers, feeling like, wow, this world is way more awesome than I even thought it was. What a happy ending to this story. Uh, that, that was not the feeling that I had uh, either. So for me, I really did think this was a story that that would be better served being plotted on the the weird the weird part of that there. And I, of course, we you know, it's not really part of the story to 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 wonder or to ask why these tunnels exist, how they. Come Come into existence, what they're for, and so on. But I, I had just a real sense that these are almost created out of the longing to escape that people feel. That they, they're not really like a thing that's in use. Like I don't think this is the way Santa Claus is getting into people's homes or something like that. You know, though that I don't know. I would read that story, I suppose. But, but I, I felt like this was something that that was created physically in the world out of the the feeling of, of entrapment and, uh, yeah. and, and uh, repression and so on that just these, you know, regular middle-class people in, in the modern world are feeling. Yeah. And if you ever get the chance, I mean, the, the very first story in the collection is about a man digging his way out of a prison, um, which has a twist I won't spoil at the end and that has similar vibes. It reminded me as well, the tunnels, the thing, if you've ever read a scanner darkly by Philip K. Dick um, and it just, which is the narrative about, people kind of fighting this drug war, but in, in between it's interspersed with these stories. And one of them is a man who sees the door to heaven. Um, and there's just a little bit of an echo of that for me anyway. Um, uh, in that story, the man sees the door to heaven and it's so beautiful, he doesn't walk through it. And after three days of seeing it everywhere, it disappears and it's gone forever. Uh, and just him <laughs> bemoaning the loss of his tunnel, that he, he thinks it's leading somewhere. Um, whether it, whether it actually does or would have helped him, I'm dubious about. <laughs> Although I like, is this nice to speculate? You know, what would have happened if if Tim had actually gotten to his tunnel? Would he have just kind of gone up into the loft one day and never come home? And and I suppose we we might wonder, you know, if he even could. I mean, we don't really quite. You know, but one, I don't know anything about the construction of houses or like why one would would fall apart from from you know drilling going on up in the the loft like that. But I, I wonder if anyone has ever actually made it, or if like the moment that you get close enough that you've done enough of the work on your your house to get access to the tunnel is the moment when your house is going to collapse, and so no one is ever <laughs> able to actually make that make that escape. Then so there's this real actual sinister element here where you can see it, but you can never actually have it. I think the weight is from all the rock or whatever it is that he's drilled out to make the hole or something, isn't it? He's just like storing it in bags up there, but it's not, he's not getting fought and all the equipment and machinery. Um, yeah. I mean, if you get the chance, do you read the first one? Cause that's very similar. It's a very short story as well about, again, a guy digging his way out of a prison and there's a lot of overlap and themes between what's going on in those two. 
Well, I'm very glad to have now a copy of this book, which is one of the great things about having guest hosts on. But if I were to to do another one of these stories out of this collection with Brandon as a regular episode of the show, which which story would you suggest? Is it that first one? Um, oh, sorry. It's not the first one. It's a, it's a couple in. Um, it's called The Walls on page 17. Ah, okay. It's about, yeah, it's about a man digging his way. The other one that always stood out to me was entertaining angels unawares, I think, on, on 47. And that is, again, it feels like a contemporary story. And it's basically about two men who are workers and they're doing this kind of job. And one of them has a very strange reoccurring nightmare, which he's constantly telling his friend about. And I, I won't say anything more about it, except that the speculative element is more visible, but it is very creepy and definitely not wondrous what's going on in that, in both of those. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Well, I'm going to put both of those on the list and we'll, we'll see if we can yeah. get to them. And I'm, I'm just looking through the table of contents here, which is, you know, that's always just a glorious thing to do. And I see that there's also a story called Psychoarchaeology. And that, that jumps out to me because psychohistory <laughs> is the central element of the Isaac Asimov series of books, uh, called, you know, Foundation, and then it's it's sequels. And I'm actually in the middle of doing a series of episodes on the, the first of those books, Foundation, right now with uh, another historian for my show Atos. Those will be out at some point probably in the in the summer. But I have to assume that this is, you know, in some way related to some of the things that Asimov is doing there. So maybe I'll see if we can throw on a uh, a bonus episode or just a little extra segment about this story. I know we started this episode off talking about this story really with your writer's hat on and what you appreciated about it. But I want to circle back around to that. And uh, do you have a favorite passage in this story? Something that really jumped out to you is just a just a beautiful bit uh, or, or skillful bit of writing. You sort of warned me about this and I really struggled to pin down a specific section. <laughs> so I did like his description of Tim. Um, that, that always stood out to me because it said it reminded me a bit of the, the times where Wolf describes other people, describes the narrator through their descriptions of other people. It's, it was doing a lot of work. But just all of his dialogue, I think even just kind of the opening, there's so much information. So I mean, some, not that there's a right or wrong, but some authors will spoon feed information and that's how the book works. Um, and some authors make you kind of follow a, a little bit of a breadcrumb trail. And for this story, for me, it was more like M. John Harrison has put out stepping stones and you, you do have to jump and you've got to make the jump. And I think his dialogue is perfectly placed with all these gaps that you can, you know, you read five sentences of dialogue and you think you feel like you've known these characters for 30 years. Um, they just have so much going on underneath them. I suppose because when I read, when I was kind of, Picking sections I thought might be really good, it's, they sounded a bit banal to me, just like a few lines here and there. Right, but yeah. all, pretty much all of the dialogue, I think, between the narrator and Lizzie, the first few times I read it, I just think that's that's really well done. It's really subtly done in a way that, you know, it's inv maybe invisible to the reader, but just it's very good dialogue, I thought, um, from a craft perspective and perfect microtension and that kind of thing. I, I agree completely. And dialogue, you know, is, is the thing that I struggle with the most as a writer to the extent that I just try to tell stories without ever having to write any dialogue. <laughs> I, I just, it's such a weakness for me that then when I read stories like this and just see it done so expertly, I'm just in complete awe of it. Yeah. He hardly uses any dialogue tags and it doesn't really matter because you know who's talking and there's never any confusion. And it's just so kind of the, the right gesture at the right moment, the right input at the right moment that brings the whole thing to life. 
And I think maybe the most important thing that he does here, the sort of you know skill that he's he's employing here, a trick maybe we might say, is that you know he's not he's not putting information, uh, plot information really uh, in that dialogue. And so the dialogue is about revealing character and about revealing relationships and the plot doesn't move through the dialogue, which, uh, you know, you, which, you know, you said something about that earlier about so much of speculative fiction doing its heavy lifting uh, in the dialogue, which can be a really fun, exciting thing to do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for like a really exciting conversation between a group of scientists, you know, who are discovering the, you know, crazy thing about the, uh, the the alien biology on this planet or, you know, whatever it might be. That's a really fun genre trope. But I think this 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 story has a packs a more of an emotional punch because the dialogue isn't doing that type of work. It's doing the emotional work and really only doing that emotional work. And yeah, this was a this was a gripping and a moving story. And I'm really grateful, really glad that you had me read it. Well, well, let me just thank you again for for guest hosting with me today and yeah, for having me read this really great story. No, it's good fun. Thank you. Well, if you, dear listener, would like to talk about this story with us, I hope you'll drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or our subreddit. And, and please be sure to check out Sun Yi's stories. You can find several of her stories, in fact, now published very generously for free on her website, which is sunyidean.com. I'll, I'll throw a link into the show notes for that as well. Uh, but Sun Yi, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with your publications? Um, I'm on Twitter and for publications... So a bunch from print magazines. They're not necessarily online, but over the next year, there should be a couple coming out through Tor.com. Next time, we're going to be back with the first of two episodes on the Roger Zelazny novella, For a Breath, I Terry. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>